is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Whatever, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. This morning, let me start off by asking you, um, what is it that you place your value and confidence in? I think for many of us, since we grew up in a performance-driven environment, we often place our confidence and value in the achievements we've attained. Though we wouldn't do so uh, overtly, we suddenly place our worth in the recognitions we've achieved, the colleges we've attended, the the degrees we've received our job titles, or our position. Even for those of you who are still in high school, you probably place some value in the fact that you go to most likely a pretty high-ranking suburban public school. And if you live in the city, you don't just go to any public school in the city. You probably go to a school like Latin or something like that. And I think, you know, we grow up up in this performance-driven culture because from early on, our parents created such for us. I meet some families and I'm amazed at how even at an early age, you know, they have their kids scheduled, just booked with activities. The child may be doing very well in school, but I hear that they drive their children to meet a math tutor so that the kid can get ahead in math. They drive their kids to all these extra extracurricular activities, knowing that, you know, strategically, these strategically taken activities will help or should help pad their college applications when the time comes. You know, parents reinforce that downtime is not beneficial time, so it just becomes ingrained in the child's head. And I know these things aren't bad. I mean, I'm sure they're very valuable, but we're going to see this morning that when it comes to salvation, you know, all these things that we've achieved or attained, they're just actually worth nothing. Um, as we begin... In the second half of Philippians, continuing on in our series on Philippians, we see Paul starts off with a familiar theme in verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. I mean, we've been seeing this theme so far in this book. We've seen how Paul teaches and, and exemplifies what it means to be able to rejoice in spite of 
suffering and hardship. And now he repeats this phrase again to reinforce this theme. And when he starts off by saying, my version is finally, maybe your version is something else, but when he starts off by saying finally, maybe some of you are thinking, okay, he's coming to the end of the letter now, just like many people thought, or some commentators thought last week when he was talking about his travel plans, which he usually saves until the end of his letters. But you can look and see that you know, he still has two more chapters to go, so he's not really trying to end his letters yet. Um, this word finally, actually in the original language, can also be translated so then. And maybe that's a better way to put it in English. So then, rejoice in the Lord. Paul, once again, is bringing this up to reemphasize this theme of joy, of being able to rejoice that he's been you know, emphasizing in the previous two chapters. And interestingly enough, even though we've talked about this before, this is the first time in the letter that Paul follows the phrase or the word rejoice with in the Lord. To stress, once again, that our basis for joy is in the Lord. Our joy isn't because we're able to you know, just get together with friends and have a good time. Our joy isn't because we have a loving family. Our joy doesn't stem from blessings we receive from the Lord. Our joy is in the Lord. And Paul, as he says at the end of verse 1, writes this as a safeguard for the Philippians. And he uses it as a safeguard. He tells us it's a safeguard because he's about to describe a situation in the Philippian church that could potentially rob them of their joy. In verses 2 to 3, Paul warns the Philippian church about a group called Judaizers. And Judaizers, if you don't know who they are, you might guess that they were Jewish people and they'd be right, or you'd be right. Um, They were devout Jews who actually did accept Jesus as their promised Messiah. But the problem was not only did they accept Jesus as their Savior, but they also believed that it was necessary to submit to and uphold certain form of Jewish practices. They believed that the Gentiles who accepted Christ had to acknowledge and practice the Mosaic Law, one of the big emphasis being circumcision. And failure to adhere to these practices would indicate you indeed were not saved. And so Paul is deeply troubled with this group, so he warns the Philippians in verse 2, watch out for these dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. It doesn't come out with such great force in our English translation, but in the original language, Paul uses a mnemonic meme to urgently stress his point. Um, it'd be hard to do so in English, but uh, one, um, one attempt I found to try to just literally translate what he said would be something like, does it say, he's saying like, beware the curs, if you don't know what curs are, it's like a cowardly or despicable person. He's saying, beware the curs, beware the criminals, beware the cutters, those who physically cut the flesh. And understand that for Paul to use such strong language as this, indicates his alarm that someone would seek to add something like circumcision as a requirement for one's salvation. He refutes this belief at the beginning of verse 3 where he says, for we are the true circumcision. And when Paul says we, he's referring to himself and the Philippian church. Although he was circumcised when he was young because he was Jewish, 
the Philippian church was comprised mostly of Gentiles who were not circumcised. So his, his claim that we are the true circumcision is not because they've actually received physical circumcision, but because they received the circumcision which is more important, and that's a circumcision of the heart. To elaborate, as some may recall, you know, circumcision came about in Genesis 17 when God commanded Abraham to have this act performed. In this chapter, God instructs Abraham to undergo circumcision, and he says every male from now on, beginning as soon as they're eight days old, must be circumcised. God said, this will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The problem, though, is that some Israelites placed such confidence in this physical mark, they felt that their salvation was secure, even if they weren't faithful to God. So God warns them. So in a place like Jeremiah 9, uh, 25, let's see if this works. He says this, he says, this, the, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised only in the flesh. You see, what was needed was not just physical circumcision, but a circumcision indicating a deeper commitment. A few chapters earlier, in chapter 4 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, or God says through Jeremiah, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. But understand the circumcision of the heart couldn't be done just through any, anyone's effort. It had to be a work of God. In Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, God declares, And I will give you a new heart. Sorry. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Or a heart, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It can't be achieved on our own because no one is righteous. Romans 3.10 says there is no one righteous, not even one. But fortunately, Paul continues beginning in verse 21 of Romans 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness has been given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So we see that salvation is solely based on God's grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This was such an important issue for Paul as he saw these Judaizers coming behind him and preaching something different, preaching a false gospel. And you know, though we don't see any Judaizers running around today, it's still relevant for us because we have some of the same things going around. A couple of days ago, I was in a coffee shop sitting down reading a Christian book. Someone noticed the book I was reading and said, oh, you know, that's a really good book you're reading. And I said, thank you. 
And then she followed up and she said, oh, if you're looking for a good church to go to, here, you can try my church. And she handed me this business card. And I looked at the business card and it says, Boston Church of Christ. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this church, but they're part of a larger organization called the International Churches of Christ. And you can do, you know, research on your own. But one of their claims is that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. And baptism, of course, you know, isn't a bad thing. I mean, it's important. We baptize at our church. But it doesn't earn you salvation, nor is it a requirement for such. And it's not just, you know, Church of Christ. There's so many other so-called Christian groups that add these types of works elements, other, you know, uh, sects of Christianity, or, or sometimes we call them cults, like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, For every other religion, in fact, there's an element of human achievement. Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, I mean, you name it. I mean, you heard it from Matt as he was sharing his testimony of his experience in Taiwan. I mean, you can see people from all these different religions presenting their offering, saying their prayers, burning incense, performing various rituals, all in an attempt to earn favor with their god or gods. Even for people... I speak with who claim to be Christians, they always often have this misconception. Sometimes I might get into a conversation about someone about their salvation and you know what they would say to God upon their death and ask them something like, you know, how do you know you're saved or why should I consider you saved? And they often respond with things like, you know, I tried my best to serve you all my life. I did what I could to be faithful. I did good works. I did my best to love others. You know, if we're thinking things like this, if this would be our first response, then our our thinking is actually like the Judaizers, holding on more to our accomplishments than holding on to Christ. I read the story of a pastor who was going out with a team to do some street evangelism. And as a member approached one guy and asked him questions about whether he had assurance of salvation and and whether he was sure he would go to heaven when he died, The man replied that he was fairly sure, but sometimes had doubts due to his struggle with sin. He shared about his love for Jesus and how he tried to live for him, but would often fall short. But the team, hearing his testimony, felt he didn't really answer the question correctly on why God should let him into heaven. And so when asked what he would say to God if he died, and God asked him why he should let him into heaven, the guy just blurted out why I would cry out, mercy. And he questioned, what kind, the pastor, after hearing that question, what kind of Christians are we producing that we place so much emphasis on making sure someone says this right prayer, you know, this magical sinner's prayer, but his team couldn't see the life of, couldn't see God working in someone's life. And though some blanks needed to be filled in, the pastor walked away feeling like, you know, this guy might have it more correct than believers who feel it's so important to get people to say a certain prayer to be saved. None of this stuff matters when it comes to salvation because nothing we do do earns salvation. In verse 3, if you ever wanted a short list to mark what should be the characteristics of a true believer, Paul gives it to you. 
He gives us three. In verse 3, he says, True believers worship by the Spirit, they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. Worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. Those are the three characteristics of a true believer. You see, what was probably going on back then was once Paul left Philippi, these Judaizers came in afterwards and started teaching these false gospel. They were probably telling the Philippians, you know, you're wrong in, in, in what you believe because you're just Gentiles. You, know, you don't really understand. We're Jews. We know more about scripture than you. We know more you know, about the gospel than you. And so these young believers in Philippi just, you know, out of you know, simple ignorance, probably deferred to these so-called more knowledgeable Jews. And Paul gets wind of this. So in his letter, he responds to the Philippians saying, well, you know, these people, yeah, they may be Jews and they may seem to know a lot about scriptures, but I'm also a Jew. And in fact, I'm a better Jew than they are. And so in verses 4 to 6, Paul refutes these Judaizers by showing how his credentials are superior to theirs. And I don't want to spend much time focusing on his credentials because I want to spend time focusing on other things. But, you know, just for your reference, you know, Paul lists things like his race, his rank, the rituals he performed, his righteousness, all these things that he could hold up to as superior to any one of his critics, to any other Jew. Not only that, but he could hold these things up is things he could cling to and formally clung to for salvation. You know, if one of, you know, a well-meaning Christian went up to Paul before conversion and asked, you know, why should God let you into heaven? Paul could have presented this long list of credentials saying, I've done all these things to earn my salvation. But once Paul was converted, he experienced a change in perspective. In verse 7 to 8, he writes, But whatever to my prophet... I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. As Paul wrote in verse 3, he is truly one who puts no confidence in the flesh. Here's a, here's a person who, you know, before he knew Christ, spent his life ranking up a list of things he could boast about, things you know only others could hope to achieve. You know, if one if we wanted to parallel this to you know someone today, maybe Paul would have been a business consultant, you know, and he could have put in his asset column, you know, top business, you know, undergrad school, you know, check, Harvard MBA, check, um, you know, big four consulting experience, check, Six Sigma Black Belt certification, check. You know, all these things Paul could have listed to show why he was superior to any one of his peers. But then in one false swoop, you know, he takes these, this list and he takes all these accomplishments and he just wipes them out and he says, they're garbage. The word he uses in the original language actually means, you know, dung or excrement. So he basically says, these things, it's just like dog poop to me. It's nothing. Paul sees his... Salvation not resting on his numerous accomplishments, but on Christ's righteousness. Verse 8b to 9. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Instead of all his previously listed accomplishments, you know, he crosses them out, and the only thing he writes in his acid, in his acid column is Christ's righteousness. This is the only thing we can put in our acid column to receive salvation. This is the only thing that can save us. Nothing that we've done or can do will earn our salvation or add to the work that Jesus has already accomplished. But then you might ask, if we have no part in earning salvation, does that mean we just sit back and do nothing? Not really. For we see that this change in perspective that Paul had also changed his desires, such that he says now in verse 10 he wants to know Christ. Jesus even tells his followers in John 17, 3, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In both verses, this word used for knowledge does not just indicate an intellectual knowledge, but an experiential knowledge of God, which leads to an awareness of and a desire to obey him. We didn't spend too much time on this when we were going through chapter 2, but verse 12 presents a very interesting concept or contrast to what we've been talking about. At the end of verse 12, Paul writes, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But we just saw that Paul taught that salvation rests on Christ Jesus alone. Even something Paul says, like the fact that he could claim that he was faultless and following the law was worthless. And yet Paul readers, or Paul tells his readers to work out your salvation. What does this mean? And is he contradicting himself? Well, a couple of terms of importance to clarify are the terms justification and salvation. Justification, we even talked about this in my Sunday school class today, means that we've been declared not guilty before God. We are seen as innocent because of the work of Christ. And Paul sees this, when he uses the word justification, Paul sees this as an event occurring when one accepts Christ. In Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Writing to those who were believers, Paul says here in this verse, they were justified when they, have, when they accepted Christ through their faith in Christ. But it's interesting, when Paul uses the term salvation or talks about salvation, he often sees it as a future event happening when Christ, re- Christ comes back, when Christ returned. To give you an example, later in, verse, in Romans 5, in verse 9, Paul says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, right, a past act, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Shall we be saved? Indicating that it hasn't happened yet, but it will happen when Christ returns. We will be saved from God's wrath. We will be saved from God's judgment. So when Paul instructs in verse 
in Philippians 2.12, when Paul instructs his readers to work out one's salvation, the first thing to note is he doesn't say work for your salvation. But what he is saying is that they should live in a way which indicates obedience to Christ until the final day of salvation when you will receive ultimate salvation from the wrath of God. And to further reinforce his point that it's not done out of our own efforts, he adds in the next verse, in verse 13, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it's not us, but it's God still working in us. So some takeaways from the text this morning. Paul commands his listeners to rejoice in the Lord. And we can rejoice in the Lord knowing that our salvation is secure through the work of Christ. It's not based on our work or anything we can do. It's based on Christ alone. Because if you think about it, if it was based on Christ's work and our work, how would we know whether we've done enough? And having this uncertainty would make us anxious and worried. That won't bring us joy. And Paul tells you, rejoice in the Lord. Be joyful that your salvation is secure through Christ's righteousness. But as Paul exemplifies, when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, a change takes place. One in which he no longer desires human achievements, but he longs to know Christ. Christ is now his treasure. As Jesus says in one of his parables, you know, it's something that a man would sell everything he had, give up all his accomplishments to gain Christ, this treasure in the field. And this change that took place in Paul should also take place for the li- in the life of every believer. But maybe when you think about it, you realize you're not there yet. Maybe you're not experiencing joy in Christ. Maybe your ultimate desire isn't to know Christ. Then what do you do? I like the term that John Piper uses, uses in one of his books, is that you fight for joy. Christ's righteousness should result in a desire for a relationship with Jesus, not ritual. You know, if you have your quiet times, you come to church, give offering because you think it's going to earn brownie points with God, it's not. What we think may count for righteousness is we just saw it counts for nothing. Even if you have your quiet times every day, you know, you faithfully attend church, you give generously, you serve others, who gets the credit? God. It's God who works in you, right? So it's not that we have to do this to earn our salvation. But if we lack joy in Christ, we need to cry out to God for him to change us, to correct their wrong thinking, to give us a heart that desires Jesus more and more, to be able to emphatically say with Paul that on the last day we want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness on our own that comes from the law or rituals but that which is through faith in Christ. So don't give up. You know, fight for it. Just as if you were in a marital relationship and troubles arose in your marriage, 
You don't say, oh, you know, let's just walk away from the marriage and give up on the relationship. No, you fight to bring it back. You fight to restore it, to bring back the joy you once had in the relationship. This is one of the ways we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know, some of us have been going to church for so long, but do we just have a religion or do we have a relationship with Christ? In his book, Jesus Greater Than Religion, Jefferson Bethke shared some thoughts on how many people in the Christian world aren't satisfied or fulfilled by their version of Christianity because it isn't Christianity. He writes in one of his books, we have religion, but we don't have Jesus. We have a good role model, but we don't have God. We have theological debates, but we don't have the living word. We have good works, but we don't have the source of good works. We have love, but not the God who is love. So take time to reflect on where you stand with Christ. Do you have a relationship with Christ such that it wants you such that you want to know Christ more and more? Or do you just have a religion that causes you to do to perform rituals in the hopes of earning salvation? Because I know I'm about to close in prayer and the worship team's gonna come up and lead us in a, a song of response. I just asked them uh, the just play the first verse instrumentally uh, just at the beginning because I'd like you to just have some time for prayer and re- reflection, to reflect on this. You know, as soon as service ends, we get so busy, we just walk out. You know, no one's thinking of, you know, the sermon or anything else because we have so many other things on our mind. We rarely have time just to sit still and be with God. So just take a few moments to reflect on where you stand with God to see whether you have this relationship, this righteousness that leads to a relationship with Christ or whether you have a righteousness that has just led to performing rituals. Is it your desire to know Christ more and more and find your joy in Christ? Ask God to do this work in you if you are not there yet. Ask him to chip away at your heart to make it his. Then after we have a little time of silence, then the worship team will ask us to join them in singing. Now let me pray as we begin this time. Father, I just thank you for the truth that is in your word. And Father, I confess that sometimes I get caught up in my accomplishments and things that I've achieved. But yet it all counts for nothing, Lord. It's just garbage. Lord, may like May we be like Paul and see that, you know, the list of things that we have, though, you know, they may be of some value. It does, when it comes to salvation, count for nothing. But Lord, we recognize, too, that we also need a change in our hearts such that, you know, it leads to a relationship with you, to want to truly know you, to want to gain you, to be found in you. And so, Lord, as we have some quiet moments on our own to just reflect, may you speak to us and let us know where we are at with you. And may you work in our hearts to change us and do things that we can't do 
and our own to desire you more and to want to uh, just know you more and more so that we may be found in Christ. In Jesus' name.